This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, director Kelly Loudenberg on her new documentary series, The Confession Tapes, which is now streaming on Netflix. This riveting seven-part documentary series explores six individual cases where psychological tactics were used to pry false confessions out of suspects, and we see how those false confessions weighed more on the jury than actual forensic evidence. Director Kelly Loudenberg shares her detailed research process for the series and how she simultaneously directed and constructed seven different episodes for the series over the course of two years. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at jogroad, Instagram at jogroadproductions. You can like our Facebook page, Jog Road Productions. And remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel for video interviews of Road to Cinema featuring Don Cheadle, Ewan McGregor, Greta Gerwig, and many more. Don't forget to subscribe to the Road to Cinema podcast on iTunes and Apple Podcasts for a new episode every week. And you can check out some of our past episodes. Those include screenwriter Max Landis and director Matt Spicer, who shares insights on his new film Ingrid Goes West, starring Aubrey Plaza and Elizabeth Olsen. And now we join director Kelly Loudenberg as we discuss her new documentary series, The Confession Tapes, which is now streaming on Netflix. So just to start off, I thought maybe we could talk about your background as a documentary filmmaker and what led you to making The Confession Tapes. That's a good question. Um, So I mostly worked as a journalist, and I've done video reporting for The New Yorker, National Geographic, The New York Times. Um, I did a lot of work with Vice. And I think I've always been interested in marginalized and and disenfranchised communities and how urbanism and infrastructure relate to um, people who don't have resources or, or can't get resources. So I think I was interested in these stories that sort of time had forgotten and um, people who had been forced into admitting to something they didn't do and had kind of been forgotten by the system and that sort of had no way out. So I was, I think that they, the this group of people are representative of the types of stories that I'm interested in, which are people who are, you know, who've been forgotten, who, who, who really have no hope, who need to hear, who need to have their stories told, if that makes sense. So I think like as a documentary filmmaker, it, it made sense for me, but, um, I think also I was interested in the psychology of it and false memories and, and the fact that, um, our version of, of truth is really malleable and can be easily manipulated. And I think I was interested in that creatively, too. Oh, going into the confession tapes, did you have specific cases in mind that you knew you really wanted to dive into for episodes? Yeah, I mean, it started with a phone call to Steve Drizzen at the Center on Wrongful Convictions. And he, you know, I didn't know about making a murder at the time I started researching. It hadn't even come out. Uh, but What year did you start uh, the confession tapes? I started over two years ago. Oh, wow. Um, it was May of 2015 or April of 2015. So that would be, yeah, over two years. Um I reached out to Steve um, because he's an expert on false confessions and an academic and um, and he gave me a list of cases to look into and said, you know, this is a real this is a real issue. This is a real problem within our our 
our criminal justice system and you should look at these cases. And I started researching those cases and I realized I couldn't turn back. And I I realized it shouldn't just be one documentary about one case, um, even unfolding over multiple episodes. I was more interested in um, an anthology and a body of work that spoke to a specific issue. Now, sort of going into it, did you have the concept that you'd be directing all the episodes? Yeah, I did. And I didn't quite know what that... I mean, I directed things before, um, but it uh, emotionally, I didn't quite understand, you know, what that was um, taking on, you know, what I was committing yeah. to. I, I could do it. Um, so you were researching and shooting simultaneously for all of the uh, stories, all yes. the episodes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, at the end, I was keeping in my head six separate cases um the the, like minute details of each one and um it was really a lot to hold in your head at one time so what is (laughs) sort of the first step in diving into the research process knowing that the end result is going to be a a narrative story that's going to be filmed so you're both sort of researching the details of the case but also sort of in your mind thinking okay so how is this going to play out narratively totally um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we, with my producers, we, um, we would create like really detailed outlines and we would really map it out thematically too. But, but the, that confession tape, that interrogation was the spine of each episode. So that was the most important thing to see and to, to study the transcripts of that. And so the original idea was that every everything would stem from the tape. And so I just wanted to look at like what what happened in that interrogation room and how the narrative was spun, you know, from there. So that's that's like really where I started. But we were, the thing that is, I think, so crazy about this show is that it was an investigatory project and like a lot of these cases hadn't been covered by media extensively um they'd been forgotten you know they might have been covered in the local news but like no one ever looked back at these cases uh to really look at what went wrong and i think lawyers lawyers have and did but they really weren't cases that frontline had done a documentary about or we were really starting from the the ground up and the only one that had been extensively covered was the Burns and Raffae case, which was two epi- it became two parts, That's and it's the first, the first two one, episodes, yeah. right? And that one has um, had a forty eight hours documentary on it, um, and had has been a part of other programming. And I was hesitant because I I really did want to tell stories that hadn't been told, but their stories hadn't been told in uh, a way that I thought was fair. Um, and in a way that I thought actually gave the full picture of what happened. So um, there, it was important to me to take that one, too. Well, how yeah. is it going back to some of the people who you interview for the series, family members, close friends? Are they comfortable initially being on camera? Because I'm sure you know it's both sort of painful for them and also, too, these are people who are not used to sort of being in the spotlight in a way. Yeah, I mean, I... I <sighs> I'm so thankful to them for trusting me and giving me the opportunity to interview them and giving me access because it 
the show was dependent upon that. It wouldn't have worked otherwise. And it was hard, it was hard for a lot of them. You know, it's not like something you want to do. You don't want to wake up and talk about the worst thing that ever happened to you. And, and it's a nightmare that continues and it, and talk about it in depth and, and relive it. And, and it, it was a hard thing for me to ask, but I also had to convey to them that it was important, not just for their loved one or, you know, their, their client or whatever, it, that it was important to educate the public about this issue as a whole, you know? Yeah. So, I, and I'm just really happy that they, they understood that and they, you know, there was a lot of people that gave their, a lot of time, you know, and thought, so. What is your process for interviewing someone for a documentary? Do you kind of go in there with very set questions or do you try to kind of sculpt it to sort of how they're interacting with you right in the room? I have, it was a really, um, it was a really extensive, lengthy process. Like this was almost just like being a lawyer. Um, yeah. and, and I had a great research team. I mean, they were amazing, like so smart. And we, we talked, we met, you know, I met with my research team. I read, uh, court documents. So I really had to get in the case to, to, to be able to do the interviews. And like that required a lot of, on my part of just like doing my own bit of research. But then my team was really good at, um, reading documents and then, you know, making notes and conveying to me the intricacies of the case. And I think we created pretty extensive uh, questions for each each person that I interviewed. Um, and I'd study those ahead of time, but then when it came to doing the interview, I would kind of throw it away. You know, yeah. I just remember Just something to have like a good foundation on so you feel comfortable going in there. But right. once you're in there, just kind of like interacting with the person. And... Right. I tried to let it go. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I wasn't like... My process as a as an interviewer is to never um, look at a list of questions. I mean, it's like a, a nice roadmap, and if I need it, I can pick it up. But I I try not to um, do interviews that way. Yeah. It should be more like a conversation. Now, getting access to the evidence, including the actual confession tapes, was that difficult, or was a lot of that public uh, mm-hmm. public evidence in a, in a sense? Well, just, I mean, yes, but just because it's public doesn't mean uh, it's not difficult to get it. It was extremely difficult to get it, um, to get documents. I mean, uh, the, um, what is it? The, um, I don't want to say the DC police, um, but the, in the eighth and H case, which is the fifth episode, um, the municipality that, had all the records for that case, refused to um, refused to answer our FOIA. Like they wouldn't um, comply. They wouldn't give us any court documents. So I had to get the documents from lawyers and um, yeah. a journalist that's writing a book about the case, who's an amazing writer. And so I just had to kind of pull from wherever and improvise. And so if the FOIA if the FOIA didn't go through for whatever reason, which, you know, they can some, they can, they can tell you whatever, um, then I had to find another way to get the documents. But even with the, with the tapes, is that difficult too? Well, that's part of the FOIA. That's part of the FOIA. Okay. The Freedom of Information Act. Um, if those interrogations and those, those confessions are entered into evidence, which 
um, they are, and that's the point of the show, um, it, it becomes uh, evident. It's evidence in the case, and it's public um, material. And you, can, you should be able to access it via um, a FOIA request. But Which, when I learned that, I realized yeah. I could do the show. Yeah. So I was like, oh, this, I can get these tapes. But it's not that easy. And also, if you're like working on a timeline for Netflix and like you have to meet certain deadlines and like these cities and police departments aren't aren't on your film schedule, they can send you the documents when they're ready. And yeah. it, it was a really stressful. Yeah. What did you sort of learn about the sort of idea of these confession tapes in a way of how people were manipulated into confessing? What, sort of what is the psychology behind that? Well, there are red flags in the way, you know, there, there are things like once you watch a certain amount of tapes or read transcripts, which I looked at a bunch of cases and we just picked these six cases. So there was a whole bunch of false confession cases that outraged me. Um, you can break it down and there are red flags and there's, you know, a technique that we use here in the U.S. It's very common called the read technique. They have a handbook and a manual that I bought. Um, which goes through the whole, the school, basically. And I, you know, I could probably do a read interrogation now because, <laughs> like, I can, uh, I've studied their books and I know um, what their methods are. And unfortunately, those methods yield to false confessions and need to be, um, I think they, that we need to, to use uh, different kinds of methods, and I don't think that the read technique is um, valid or, or or very safe. So and anyway, it doesn't really depend on well, the actual conviction in a lot of these episodes doesn't really depend on the evidence itself. It's sort of all about the confession, which is frightening in a way. Well, that's the thing about a confession. It's it 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 once someone confesses, it's like you you make the evidence. Um, it's almost irrelevant. Yes, yeah. but it's like tunnel vision, and you sort of make everything that you find fit your version of events and throw everything else out. So it's like it's kind of this distorted um, view on reality, like that you're you're pulling things that don't. Um, you're you're just basically you're reaching for you're grasping for straws or whatever the word it's tunnel vision it's a, a thing that police officers suffer from a lot especially after they get a confession yeah so I think it just changes the way you investigate the crime once that happens and it changes the way you look at the evidence you have and you begin to change the facts of the case based on. Um, the evidence that you have so you start to just mold your version um and i think that that yeah i mean juries weigh the confession more than they do other evidence and that's been proven so i i also even looking at the oj simpson case where the evidence wasn't a, a different he didn't confess but it's sort of like the evidence didn't matter in a way right yeah. well that's that's i mean that's true a lot. You can spin evidence uh, in multiple ways, and that's what I'm saying, too. It's yeah. like there's junk science. There, there's evidence. There's, there's alibis. There's uh, witness misidentification. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to, to you know, give the narrative of the case. Like, and, and there's multiple ways to interpret that. 
So yeah. I think that's what the danger is. I mean, when you have a confession, it's like someone just telling you they did it. That's like the easiest way <laughs> to understand what happened is yeah. through someone's own words. So it becomes that becomes really hard to undo. And I mean, especially if you don't let an expert on false confessions testify in a lot of these cases, I think maybe in all of these cases, they didn't allow that expert. Yeah. Um, I was curious because you mentioned that there was kind of a very strict timeline when you were working with Netflix. Um, so how does that sort of impact you as a filmmaker, knowing that you have to hit sort of certain benchmarks in, in completing the series? So are you kind of, uh, especially since you're doing six stories simultaneously, how does it, what, how does that timeline affect like the real day to day? Yeah, just production? sort of, you know, how you're like, for you, are you kind of looking at all of the episodes simultaneously or are you kind of working on them one by one when you're editing? Yeah, we were working on them. I mean, at the beginning, I, because I had researched the show for a year on my own, I had a head start. That, that's the, I think that's the only thing that made it. Because that was before you started filming interviews or doing. Yeah, so like that, I told you in May or whatever, 2015, yeah. I began researching this and it took, a, like, it took me a full year to really understand this, this phenomenon. I mean, I really dug deep into it. And then once I really understood what the show was and what the vision was, I approached Netflix and things moved pretty quickly from there. But then once we were in production, we were just like editing. I would go into the field for a bit, come back, look at the edits, you know, look at things, give notes on the road with shitty internet. You know, it was really, it was like really exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So you were kind of like doing many things at once, trying to get it completed. Trying to hit the t the deadlines, yeah. To which you know, in documentaries, it doesn't work by your timeline always. Like yeah. people are available at times when you're not there. You know, you have to go back. Especially this um, show, there's a lot of travel. All the episodes are different locations scattered about. Yeah, there there was a lot of that. And, and I tried for each case to, to fly to that place and meet people before um, we filmed. So, and that was even more travel for me because I, I mean, thankfully I'd already met um, two or three of the defendants beforehand. Wait, no, once we start, I had already met two of them beforehand. And then once Netflix signed on, I would I would just try and fly ahead of time to these locations and meet with family and friends and meet the defendant in prison. And I didn't always get to do that for every single one. So I'm actually going to meet Clifton Yarbrough, who's in the sixth, oh, he was in the fifth episode. I'm going to meet him soon, so I just do. Uh, oh, this is a random question, but do prisons allow you to film? I haven't seen all, but do they allow you to film kind of some of the, you know, interview their prisoners? Or no, is that, that's. But the prisoners, like the prisoner, I call them that. But the defendant's Defend, yeah. voice is very important throughout um, each episode, and and I wouldn't have. I w I would not have wanted to make this without their their involvement and 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 so that to me was the most important thing was to talk to them and understand what happened from their perspective um but they didn't you know i tr i tried to film in each prison and i we that was another thing that took a lot of time was like sitting in requests and waiting and seeing if they would let me film and 
or let me in with a, a Zoom, you know, an audio recorder. Um, they, they're just really, um, they, they, they don't allow access at all anymore in, uh, US, in U.S. prisons. Wow. Yeah. Pretty much across the board in U.S. prisons. Yeah. I mean, it was like all like a deny, deny, deny. Wow. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to talk on the phone. Yeah. And I'm just gonna do. We'll just we'll just figure this out, and and I would just set up calls, and I'd talk to them all the time. <laughs> I'm just like, maybe that was better. Yeah. yeah. So once you got sort of the green light from Netflix, is it scary in a way where it's okay? Like now you have to kind of dive in and see if you can like confirm that you can interview all these people and kind of get the ball rolling. Yeah, I mean, that was really terrifying, too. It's like, okay, now it's for real. Um, if so-and-so backs out or if the, you know, what are we going to do? Did you ever have, like, backup episodes? Like, if sort of certain people said no, you would have to kind of go to, like, another case in a way? or Not I mean, th there were other, other cases that we were really interested in... Um, in, in making a documentary on and in, in, in including in the series, but... I felt so strongly about this, these six cases that I had. And once I was invested in them, even if the, you know, cops and the prosecutors and the interrogating officers and, um, the people on, on that side of the, of the case dropped out, I decided like, I'm, I'm still going to tell the story. Like, and they, and they did drop out, you know, like I had, on, on the 8th and H episode, I had, you know, a, pr a prosecutor and um, one of the investigating officers um, agreed to do an interview. And then when I got to the D.C. area, they dropped out. There was, there was, there was a lot of that. I mean, and I was, I mean, and I built the episode on their, um, what they, you know, what, what they would be saying, you know. Themes they would be talking about, and then when they dropped out, it's like, well, who's going to talk about that, and how can we? So that was really hard. Like, I so mean, sometimes it's about kind of like filling in the gaps when you don't have access to certain people, or you you, know, you can't get those interviews. Right, and we don't have voiceover or you know, hosts or anything like that. And I would never have wanted that. But like, if those people don't give me access, like, how am I supposed to hear about their investigation? Like, where am I going to learn about that? And I just had to, I mean, it just worked. I mean, I mean, I, I was just, I wasn't going to let their unwillingness to, to speak or their, un, you know, and, and a lot of them, they're public servants that should be providing transparency. They know uh, the ins and outs of the case. They investigated it. They should yeah. be able to talk about it, but they refused. So I was just going to proceed anyway. And we just figured out how to do that. And I had a great team, like just amazing people helping, you know, improvise. Yeah. Putting, you know. How, how important is that to have a team to collaborate with? I mean, it was so important. And we were, we're a very tight knit team that were, we were all on the same page about what we were making and um, just worked. They they also worked around the clock and they also took on the emotional burden of this and yeah. yeah so I mean that was so important and it was produced you know m mostly by women and the field crew were all women 
Um, so that was also really important. Like my, a lot of my producers were women. It wasn't produced all by women, but a lot of, it was a um, very female heavy team. I was curious sort of, you know, when you first started off as a filmmaker and kind of what your goals were then and kind of how that's like evolved over time. Did you kind of know what types of projects you wanted to do at the very beginning or did that sort of evolve? Mm, yeah, I think it, it evolved. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always the same themes that I keep turning back to and I just look for the mediums in which to tell the, those stories and I think whether it's like fiction or nonfiction, they, they just come out in various ways. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, when I started, I went to NYU and I graduated um, when YouTube was really not much of a thing. And I started just traveling with a little DV camera, making my own stories and selling them yeah. to the internet. And so I, may, I sort of worked out a lot of my thoughts about character and like community and um, geography and and just how people relate to places and storytelling like very early just through like well, those documentary you know, films or narrative or they're documentaries yeah they're little mini docs like on all kinds of like, homeless tent cities and I did a big thing for the New Yorker at during right after the great recession, not the New Yorker, sorry, the New York Times, I did a, something that never got published about, I called it middle-class poverty after the great recession. I was going into hotel rooms and interviewing um, middle-class families that were sort of exiled to extended stay hotels in Georgia, where I'm from. And I, you know, documented the stories of several families, like living in the 18-wheeler truck beds and hotel rooms and... Um, and I went back three years later and interviewed the same families who still hadn't rebounded. Yeah. So I've been I was reading just a lot interested about that, in that lately, like the hidden homeless, they call them now. They're sort of <clears> like <throat> people living in their cars or living in motels who are just, you know, not, see, we don't, we think of homeless people typically <clears throat> just out on the streets, but right. there's, you know, other variations on that in a way. Yeah. I mean that the, I found a whole bunch of like regular families living in tiny cramped hotel rooms. Um, off the highway, you know? So there, to me, like there's a thread that runs through all of this work. And I mean, I love great characters. Um, so I think I'm, I'm interested in that and that drives me, but I'm also interested in what's maybe hidden in plain sight or some, something that we take, um, also like, a confession it's like you take it at face value but then when you look a little deeper you understand it a different way and I think like it's really just like digging into a subject to understand that it it is not as it appears you know yeah I think no, especially those confession tapes I mean it just totally flips your notion of you know kind of how the criminal justice system works exactly yeah and I think that's similar to the homeless you know the middle class poverty uh, project that I did that like middle class families were um, living in such an extreme way after the Great Recession and that it continued for for so long it probably still continues um, but yeah especially with the with the confessions because I felt that that was like a big 
blow for me to learn that's how our system works. Because it wasn't just about the false confessions. It was about the whole breakdown of justice. So. Do you know what you want to do next? Uh, yeah, but I don't really, I mean, I don't want to talk about it, but it's, um, or do you plan on doing another season of, uh, confession tapes? Um, we haven't really talked about it yet, but there's definitely more stories to tell. So, but there's another topic within criminal justice that I'm interested in. I, I just, I needed it, it like takes a lot out of you. Like when I was doing this, I was like, "Wow, this is just—I don't know if I can do this again." But then you get some space, and you're like, "Okay, I could do it again. I got one more fight." Yeah, I think the narrative filmmaking—you know—you write the script, and then you go out and you shoot it, and you edit it. It's very like regimented. But with a documentary, there's just so many moving pieces. Like, are you going to get this interview? You know, you're finding research along the way. You know, you're crafting the whole story from scratch without a script initially. So just those hurdles to jump over. I feel like there are many more in the documentary world than in the narrative world, in a sense. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that stand in the way. Yeah. But then there's a lot of things that happen that are just, like, magical that you couldn't plan, you know. Think you know, like the eighth and H case went to the Supreme Court after we'd already decided we were going to do that case. Supreme Court announced that they were going to hear the case, and that might have compromised our access. Definitely did to some of the people who were going to talk, and then they decided not to. But it also for me because we got to go to the Supreme Court and, and film. And, and then hear the arguments. Um, and then in the end, when it didn't turn out in their favor, I mean, to me, it just showed the importance of making the show even more. I mean, it was like a huge disappointment, but like it also just pointed to the fact that this had to be made. Like it needed to, be, it was a story that needed to be told. And, and to now have a big audience through Netflix who can see who can stumble upon it and you know understand how the system works i think that can impact that can have a ripple effect through the society yeah i hope so and especially for young people and um i i just think anyone watching it i mean even if they take away you never speak to the police without a lawyer like that you know simple lesson um that would be awesome but there are other things we can do. There are mandatory recording laws we can pass in every state. We can change the way we interrogate suspects. Um, and there, there are things that we can do. And, I, and I'm waiting. Um, I, I'd like to keep working on those things, too. Like, I, I'd like to see, like, real change come from it. And I think you never know what's going to happen. But I'm already happy with the way it's opened uh, people's eyes. So So the confession tapes is on uh, Netflix right now. Everybody can stream it. Yeah. Cool. It's and it's it's I think it's all over the world. I know they translated it into 120 languages. Oh, that's amazing. So, yeah. So I think people in other countries can watch and look at how crazy <laughs> we are here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having it. me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Road to Cinema podcast. 
And remember, you can watch director Kelly Lautenberg's new documentary series, The Confession Tapes, now streaming on Netflix.